in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 26, um, Matthew 26, uh, verse 69 is where we are going to start. And then we will continue to 27, verse 5. So that is Matthew, chapter 26, uh, verse 69 to 27, verse uh, 5. And there is a reason why I have divided this portion in the way that I have. Uh, it seems to me that there is a contrast in the text between what is going on with Peter and what is going on with uh, Judas. And in between you have Jesus who is about to be handed over, uh, excuse me, yeah, about to be and being handed over to uh, Pilate and then the crucifixion. So that's what we are going to see this morning, congregation. Please stand now to hear the holy, inspired, uh, inerrant reading, uh, God's, uh, reading of God's word. 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl said, saw him, and, he, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with a note, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him astray uh, away, excuse me, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Congregation of the Lord. <clears throat> there is a scene in uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien's book, that is difficult for me to forget. The Fellowship has left the dwellings of the elves and they are navigating through the Anduin River. And suddenly the company arrives to this chain of mountains like an entrance. But guarding the entrance are two towering figures, two statues uh, uh, that have been uh, crafted in the rock. These are called the Argonauts in the book. These gigantic sculptures of two ancient kings who are extending their hands to a halt unconquerable figures uh, they look tall and mighty and next to these gigantic gigantic statues the members of the company look like tiny ants really small figures and Tolkien immediately speaks about how the hobbits and the rest of the company feel really really small they look powerless except for Aragorn 
who right now resembles the figure of a king, mighty and powerful. And I found that there is something akin to that in the text, brothers and sisters. Matthew's narrative is showing us two towering figures in the text, and in the midst of both of them, the figure of, the, of King Jesus. And that is why the theme for uh, this morning's sermon is the king amidst towering sinners. The king amidst towering sinners. And we will see how despite these two immense, gigantic uh, figures, Jesus still rises over sin and conquers over it. And so we will analyze the text in three parts. First, a cursed Peter. A cursed Peter. Second, condemned king. And finally, suicidal Judas. So a cursed Peter first, second, condemned king, and finally, suicidal Judas. Let's see then the first part, a cursed king. And I want you to scan with your eyes once again verses 79 and 70. Uh, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Now, while Jesus' confession about himself remains unflinching before the fangs of the devil congregation, it seems that Peter's confidence is not, is not so sure, and his boldness seems to have been diminished at this point. Now, many simply like to put and love to put Peter on the spot, remarking that the first person that speaks to Peter is a little girl, someone who does not present a threat to Peter personally. And they like to mock Peter because he's scared of a little girl. But Peter, brothers and sisters, is not here in the text, is not here in this sacred text especially, so we can chuckle about him and his cowardness. That is not the point, because Peter here is actually a mirror, a mirror that reflects who we are in ourselves and in our own strength. Weak, feeble, fragile, easily to be scared about other people, that is who we are. And what is happening to Peter here is actually what happens to every single one of us to, who try to live the Christian life in our own strength. The Lord has said to his people that when his presence is among them, when they trust in him, then one will persecute a thousand. But when God's people remove their trust from the Lord, then one will persecute thousands of the Israelites and they will flee in terror. And that is what Peter is experiencing here. A little girl is asking him about Jesus, but Peter prefers to ignore the question and pretends that he knows nothing about him. That is the first step of Peter, removing himself from Jesus Christ. He feels persecuted right now, even though no one is following him. And we all know that Jesus has mentioned and has affirmed that there are two more steps left for Peter to walk by. And now the idea is crystal clear, isn't it, congregation? Self-reliance, self-trust can bring you only so far before it starts to fail you. The Christian life does not work under your resolutions, your boldness, your commitments, those are simply fountains that will dry very, very quickly. 
we can't live the Christian life in ourselves. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, is run by the will of the Holy Spirit, whose living waters fill us and empower us and permeate us and enable us to stand firm. The task is not up to you, and I'm sorry to mention that, but the task is not up to you. The only demand of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is to believe in Jesus. If you don't do that, if we don't abandon ourselves to him, then we are living the Christian life in our own strength, in ourselves, with our own efforts, with our own capital. And then just like Peter, we too will be running scared. Now, see the second step of Peter in verses 71 and 72. And when he went out to the entrance, says the Bible, another servant girl saw him, and she, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with a note, saying, I do not know the man. Now, listen to what is going on here. The second step that Peter takes consists in actively, physically removing himself from the scene, running away from this other girl. Maybe he can go to a dark place, right? Where no one will able to see him. And so he will remain uh, hidden in the darkness. But poor old Peter, he doesn't get a time to breathe, does he? Just as he is going to the gate of the property, just as he feels safe enough, another servant girl has seen him. And this time she's not that prudent, is she? She talks to everyone around that is seeing Peter right now. She talks to those who are next to Peter. And what a nightmare to Peter, who again is being put, uh, being put in, this, in this spot. Now, again, he is the center of attention. And that is how God's providence works, doesn't it? Sometimes uh, when we try to run away from him, we like to think that the best for us is to remain hidden, to stay in the darkness, to deny that we are Christians for a little while, to stop coming to church so we don't have to deal with everything else for a moment. But sadly, it seems that wherever we go, people seem to call us out on it. I have a friend who ran away from Christ several years ago, and an atheist friend of his found him on the street, very, very drunk. And this atheist guy is shocked by what he's seeing. And so he comes to him and he goes, brother, were you not a Christian? What happened to you? That is what is happening to Peter here. He's not allowed to forget that at some point he walked with the Messiah openly and proudly. And what is behind those actions, if not God's providential call to Peter? A call of God in love and in mercy, using even the enemies of Christ to call Peter back to himself. Isn't it true that we can see his love, his mercy, his goodness even then? Peter's denial, however, becomes stronger this time. It has built up. It consists on an oath. It can be translated as, I swear, I do not know the man. Pretty curious, eh? How Peter now is walking in this dangerous path. But it gets worse. Look verses 73 and 74, because these verses mark the third step. After a while, the bystanders came up to Peter and, Peter and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. 
Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Boys and girls, have you ever done something that you know is wrong and you are certain though that no one else knows about it? But even the most minimal question of people triggers you. They don't know what you have done, but you start to think they know and you can hide it. You don't act normal. You don't act at all. Everything, the way you are acting, the way you speak, everything points to the fact that you have done something wrong. Have you done that? Because that's how Peter is feeling right now in the text. We have no indications that these girls want to harm Peter. We have no indications that these people want to harm Peter either. But Peter thinks that something is going to happen to him. And so he is running away. He prefers not to identify with Jesus. And that is why his reaction is super strong in this, in this text. He curses himself. He curses everything and everyone in a desperate and super obvious movement to demonstrate that he doesn't know Jesus. Is there anything worse than this? Is there anything worse than this? And actually, uh, some commentators have suggested that the Greek text he here seems to point out to the fact that Peter is not cursing himself, but actually he's cursing Jesus. You see, uh, Peter's sin and his denial is not a small thing. This is not a small sin. These are very big, very serious sins. Peter, here in the text, becomes a betrayer as well. How long has he been able to remain standing for Jesus? Wasn't he the one who said that he will die for Jesus if necessary? Where is that the brave and bold Peter now? Let me ask you, where are you standing now, congregation? Is self-confidence guiding you? Is trust in your own efforts and in your own powers sustaining your Christian life? Have you thought with Peter that you are going to make it? But you have found yourself hearing the, roast, the rooster crowing and your life in pieces. In any case, here is where we see the first towering figure being raised up before our eyes. An argonath of sin, if you will, before us. In no other than Peter himself. His sins are big and horrible. What can be worse than denying Jesus Christ? Denying Jesus, rejecting Jesus in the strongest possible terms. And he knows it. And that's why he goes in seven, verse 75. He went out and wept bitterly. Have you wept bitterly, congregation? Have you walked away from Jesus? Or have you decided that you are going to make it only for later on find yourself weeping bitterly? Have you understood why? Have you realized that the Christian life is not about you? It's not about staying positive? It's not about trying to show yourself happy to everyone else? As, as if you have everything together? Have you realized that you will not conquer in yourself? Have you realized that you yourself look like a towering, towering statue 
with sins that are just building up day after day after day. And then the question is, is there any hope to that? Is there any hope? And I want you to feel this tension because for Matthew, it seems that it seems apparently on the surface that there is none. Because Matthew himself leaves the figure of Peter for us, crying, weeping in the darkness. We don't know what is going to happen to him next in the book of Matthew. This actually is the last time that Matthew mentions Peter by name. And as he does so, Matthew moves us instead to see the figure of Jesus Christ, the condemned king. So we are going to move as well. And this is our second point. And as we move to chapter 27, you will be able to see that Matthew changes locations as well. We are no longer with Peter. We're actually with Jesus inside the house of, this, of the um, uh, high priest. And the scriptures don't hide anything for us, do they? Listen to verse 1. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now, as you may remember from last week, the reason for Jesus' condemnation before the Sanhedrin was that Jesus identified himself as God and as the Messiah. That Jesus is the long-expected Messiah who will deliver his people from their sins. And that he is the Son of Man who will sit in the place of power and will judge the world. That is the reason why they have decided to condemn Jesus. However, we find these priests and these leaders taking counsel here. Wasn't that the, the, the faith of Jesus uh, already decided? Well, yes. But then why are these guys talking about, uh, uh, talking and taking counsel against Jesus? Well, the reason for that is, brothers and sisters, that you need to remember, Israel is not an independent nation anymore. They are under the, the, the Roman authority, under the Roman Empire. The Sanhedrin, in other words, cannot kill people. They don't have that authority. They need to go to the Romans for that. And that is why we see them taking counsel here. They need something convincing for the Romans. The Romans will not condemn anyone simply because the Jews don't like him or simply because the Jews don't believe him as the Messiah. The elders of, of the people know that. They know that the Romans will dismiss those, those charges. That's why they need something of more substance, something more heavy before the Romans' eyes. And in those times, that meant only one thing, that Jesus needed to be accused of rebellion. He needed to be accused of being a terrorist. And Osama bin Laden of those days, one of those guys who will send people to bomb themselves in metro stations and in cities in order for them to rule over other people. One of those. One of those. And that is why they will use precisely this excuse. And that's why they are taking counsel right now, polishing the final details about how to accuse Jesus. And Matthew's depiction of this counsel, however, do remind us of Psalm 2, do they not? Why do the nations take counsel against God's anointed? Here we see a painting, a painting, as it were, of how God really sees these leaders. They are no longer his royal priesthood. They are no longer his holy nation. 
Actually, they are those wicked leaders who gather together to rebel against the king. But remember Psalm 2, the king will laugh at them. And you see, the day of resurrection will also be the day of laughter for King Jesus. And that is a good comfort for us, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. The nations of the world, including our own, love to show off their toys, their power, their armies. They love to think that nothing will ever happen to them because in our own might we trust, do we not? And so they take counsel against the king. They rebel against him, raise their fists against him who is in the throne in rejection. But the king laughs. Is that it? All the power of the world, nothing before him. You see, our vision of the church normally is we are a puny, really small, very little church in this world of superpowers. Weak, limited, feeble, small church. But our vision of the church of Christ should not be marked by what we see, but actually by what we believe. Because puny little church, small church, also has Jesus, the mighty king, who defends his church. He brings her to glory as his saints die and shed their blood for his sake. That is what we need to see and focus upon, brothers and sisters. But even then, it seems like the deliberations are over. They have their plan, and now they need to make it look real. That is why they bound him and let him away and deliver him over to Pilate, the governor. Jesus, brothers and sisters, this kingly figure is parading now through the streets of Jerusalem, bound and chained as a weak and defenseless prisoner. Can he do something about Peter? Can he do something about Peter? Can it really be that Jesus is this long-promised king that we are seeing now in chains? But you see, congregation, his chains, his suffering, his death are the very instrument that, that will be used to obtain salvation and redemption. The humiliated king will become also the exalted king who is now standing before these statues of sin. And we have two of them, by the way. So let us move to see the second statue, suicidal Judas. And this is our third point, suicidal Judas. Now pay attention to the text. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, isn't that interesting, brothers and sisters? Judas, the betrayer, for the very first time since we heard about him handing Jesus over to sinners, seems to be have a change of mind. The reality of what he has done is finally striking home. He knows now, by experience, that what he has done is wrong. That he sent an innocent man to be killed. And so what does he do? Well, he seeks to mend, to, to restore what he has done. Seeking to reverse his actions. Maybe even hoping that Jesus will get released if he returns the money. I want you to notice both images right now, brothers and sisters. 
Peter denies Jesus, walks away, and weeps bitterly because he has betrayed Jesus. But of a change of mind in Peter's uh, heart, we hear nothing. Judas, on the other hand, hears what is happening to Jesus, seeks to reverse the deal, and there is something going on in his heart, in his mind. And I'm not making that up, and I don't want to confuse you, but I do want you to feel the tension between these two characters in the text. Peter seems to be still far away from Jesus, while Judas seems to be mending his path. Judas's first step seems to be a good one. Is that true repentance, though? Is that true repentance, though? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. They said, what is that to us? See it to yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he, de he departed and he went and hanged himself. Why did Judas come to the leaders? Because he was hoping to erase his sin. Not by seeking God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but actually by his own efforts. Don't misunderstand me. Amending our sins, trying to uh, restore what we have broken, that is a good thing. But it's only a worthy effort if we have received God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus first. Nothing of what we can do in ourselves can cleanse us. And nothing that we do can atone for our sins. And that is why Judas is trying to do here precisely the very same thing. And we shouldn't be surprised that the response of the leaders is simply wicked. Go and take care of it. They don't care. They are like the devil. They pile upon Judas more and more guilt. And he is told that he needs to deal, it, deal with it himself. Oh, and deal with his guilt he does. In an act of desperation, he throws the money in the temple, runs away, and he hangs himself committing suicide. Learn the lesson, congregation. A gospel that consists in good works, in which we are our own saviors, in which everything is in our court and we need to do everything, that is not a gospel. That is not a gospel at all. And I want you to consider now these two towering sinners before us. Judas, just like Peter, both of them have good intentions at first. But his self-will, that is Judas's will, his guilt and remorse can bring him just thus far. There is no forgiveness of sins in ourselves. We cannot atone for them in our own strength and might. And remorse will only lead us to destruction. Judas's end clearly is worse than Peter's, isn't it? Peter still stands alive, but Judas, Judas has ended his life. And not that suicide is the unforgivable sin, because it's not. But suicide actively ends the possibility of any repentance whatsoever. After death, there is no more chances. There is not again a chance to repent. Also consider Judas's spiritual state, because in Matthew, Judas is from the very beginning introduced to us as the betrayer. The very first mention of Judas's name in Matthew is Judas, the one who is going to betray him. He follows Jesus. He's among the twelve, but still his aim is always to betray Jesus, to hand him over to sinners. Peter, on the other hand, is always introduced to us 
as that guy who takes the initiative. He's a brave. He trusts in himself a little bit too much, does he not? He follows, he obeys, he even walks over, over, over water in Matthew and affirms that he will never betray Jesus. And yet he sins, he betrays Jesus, he trusts in himself too much. Both cannot save themselves. Both are sinners. Both incapable of bringing life to themselves. Both serious betrayers of Jesus. And accepting that the, the fact that Judas is dead right now, there is not a lot of difference between both of them, is there? Both of them stand in front of this, in fr stand in front of us as these gigantic statues of unconquerable sins. Can the figure of the king do anything in light of such mighty sins? But we know, do we not? And you haven't telling it yourself in your head that Peter will be among the 11 who will receive Jesus Christ after he has risen again. That Peter is restored, but that Judas is not. Clearly, Jesus is capable of doing something before our sins. What is the difference, though? The difference, congregation, is between faith and unbelief. Belief and unbelief. Judas' suicide is simply the logical conclusion of unbelief, of continual rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew this. And for three years, he was ministering to Judas, calling him out, seeking to move him to repentance. But Judas, every single time, even to the end, decided not to believe in Jesus. Peter, on the other hand, although a terrible sinner, just like Judas, is always depicted as reaching out to Jesus. Remember what he says when he's the water? He's, when he's starting to walk in the water and he's starting to go down? Lord, save me! I perish. He has always been crying in that way. That, that is the difference, brothers and sisters. The difference is not between a man with fewer sins and a man with bigger sins. Both of them are horrible. There is nothing worse than betraying the Messiah. The difference, rather, is between trusting in Christ or not trusting in Christ. Because for this Jesus that we are seeing here this morning, congregation, there exists no sin that he cannot forgive. Peter trusts Christ, and then he's later restored. Jesus, uh, Judas, excuse me, ignores Christ, and his end is eternal death. So this morning, I want to challenge you to have the correct perspective about Jesus Christ. You may think that your sins are big, towering sculptures like the Argonauts in the Lord of the Rings that represent your past, your present, and even your future sins, that there is nothing Jesus can do in order to forgive you, to save a sinner such, a, uh, such as you. I want to challenge that thought this morning. I want to present you the Christ. If he forgave Peter, who betrayed Jesus, he will forgive you as well. Jesus went to the cross so we no longer have to take matter in our hands. Do not follow Judas' example. Do not feed your remorse that will not lead you far for many years. Rather, what the scriptures are presented this morning to us is that we need to believe in Jesus, 
that we need to rest in his salvation, that we need to cry with Peter, save me, Lord, that I'm perishing. And he will. He will wash away your sins. He will mend your heart. He will restore you. If you do that, if you have done that, then you are not a Judas. You are a Peter. You will be restored. And on the day of resurrection, then you will be among the multitudes, dressed in white garments, ready to receive the King who is coming in glory. That is who we are in Jesus Christ. So this morning, may we come to Jesus. May we trust in Him. May we abandon ourselves even now. And may the Lord help us to do so. Let us pray.